I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Everybody's always asking me, Chacon, why do you continue to, to, to do Words on a Wire? You're in your 10th year. Uh, why? You have to read so many more books and you have to prepare and you have many other things going on in your life. You're, you're writing your own books, you're teaching your own books, you're department chair, you're a daddy, a, a husband, etc., etc. Why do you do the show? Everybody asks me that. Well, first I have to say that nobody really asked me that. In fact, I don't think anyone has ever asked me that. Uh, but I ask it to myself all the time. Why do I continue to do it? And the answer I keep giving myself is that I love to see new books succeed, especially in our time, in our culture, in our literary market. I want to do whatever is in my cultural reach to promote good literature. But I especially love to see a good book succeed when it's written by a former student. There is no greater feeling than when a student of mine comes out with a book, or more importantly, a good book, because it's kind of embarrassing when a former student comes out with a bad book. Today, my guest is Carlos Fidel Espinosa, a former student who earned his MFA here with us at the University of Texas in El Paso. I'm, a proud, I'm proud to announce the publication of his first book, How to Lie to a Customs Agent, Poems by Carlos Fidel Espinosa. He is a writer, editor, musician, and activist from here, uh, El Paso Juarez. His work has appeared in NPR, Vice, Words on a Wire, hey, that's us, Acentos Review, uh, Border Senses, Pilgrimage, and many, many others. He is editor and chief of Barrio Panther, Literatura Magazine, and he teaches creative writing and literature at UTEP and El Paso Community College. The Shelf, Poems by Carlos Fidel Espinosa. Carlos, congratulations. It's been how many years since you graduated with your MFA? Uh, let's see. I graduated in 2013, so seven years. Seven years. And did you yeah. think you would have a book after seven years, or did you think you, ha you would have a book before seven years? Tell, tell me about the, the process of getting from your, your MFA degree to your first book. Well, when I graduated with the, uh, with the MFA, I had written this novel, um, so I thought for sure that was going to be what I was going to publish first, and I thought it was going to be easy sailing, naively so. I thought, you know, <laughs> oh, my book's ready. Everybody loves it. It's, right. it's good. It's going to get published. Did you, did, you uh, have, did, you have, I, did you have the fantasy about uh, publishers and agents fighting over it? Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I thought for sure this is, this is going to win awards. This is right, going to right. be New York Times, top of the list, and uh, – there's something that stuck with me from the MFA program, which was that, uh, you know, a big part of writing is uh, networking and how you promote yourself. Right. And I thought, that, that, that can't be true. It has to be just the written word. That's uh -huh. the purest form. But, of course, it's not. You know, it's how you promote yourself. And right. uh, so I sent the book out. It didn't win any awards. I went back and I looked <laughs> at it. I saw things that, you know. This is what's missing in this book. And I started working on that book again and rewriting it. And then, of course, I went through a phase where I was going from first person or should I switch it to third person? And um, it's, you know, it stayed with me. And there was there was some times where, you know, it, it got dark and I thought, shit, man, I'm not going to. 
I'm not going to uh, be able to turn this into something that 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 works for me. Mm-hmm. And maybe writing was the wrong career path. Oh, you doubted your yourself as a writer, not just the novel, but you doubted yourself. Yes, I started doubting myself and thinking, uh, you know, maybe I should just uh, look into doing something else. And now I've just wasted a bunch of time <laughs> and a lot of money and <laughs> it's not going to work. Um, so why didn't you? Why but, didn't you just give up? Well, during those times when I think, you know, like three or four years after the MFA program, uh, I was hired to write uh, someone else's book, to mm-hmm. ghostwrite someone else's book. And I would show up every day with my computer, and I didn't have a laptop at the time, so I'd have to pack up my computer, <laughs> uh, you know, and I'd put it in the suitcase, and I'd show up with my suitcase to these offices, and I'd sit down and I'd start writing. And, and I noticed that the other writers in the room, uh, not only were they, were they not as productive as I was, but that I had something, you know, special about the way I wrote. I wrote. Wow. And from there, from, from working on that book, then I got hired to write commercials, then I got hired to write for political ads, uh, then I got hired to write on websites, and I realized, like, you know, wow, I can, I can write this. <laughs> you know, there's something there. And so during that time, you know, I had this, this book going, this novel that I had written in, as my, as my uh, thesis for my MFA, and uh, I was also writing other things. I was writing short stories, and I started writing poems again, which is something that I hadn't really done, you know, since I had, I had graduated from the MFA program. And even then, I didn't I didn't like writing poems. I didn't think of myself as a poet. And lo and behold, a year and a half after that, I had written this book of poetry. <laughs> and yeah, so I came back, and this book of poetry saved me in that sense that. I was sending those poems out, and they were getting published. Every poem that I sent out wow. got published. That must have felt and I good, thought, yeah. Yeah, and that that really gave me legs and, and made me feel like, uh, all right, well, welcome back to, to the track of being a writer again. You know, I, I think there's certain phases when you're working on a novel. Um, you know, a novel is, is, I think, one of the most difficult uh, things to write as as. Uh, as a writer, as opposed to poems or short stories, I mean, they're difficult and they have their own challenges, but to novel, a novel, it's such a commitment. It's such a commitment, such a time commitment. And you have to re-enter that world every day. If you read a novel, you're entering into another world and you imagine everything. And as a writer, you do the same thing. And if you interrupt that time, it's hard to re-enter the novel. And so it could take a long, long time. And there is a certain point I've noticed when I'm working on a novel when I just completely quit believing. And when I stop believing, I think maybe it has something to do with my writing. And I start thinking about things like, well, maybe I should change the point of view or maybe I should, uh, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe it should be third person, you know, whatever. Um, But uh, I find that the, the best way to deal with that is just to let it go for a while, let it go for a while and then return to it. And I guess that's what you're doing right now. You're returning to that novel. Yes, I'm returning to it. I'm doing the uh, line edits right now, and uh, that's exactly what happened. I, I had to leave it for a little while, and then I returned to it, and I read it, and I am, uh, like you said, I'm, I'm drawn back into this world. 
that those characters are going through, and uh, I'm realizing also that that was it was right. I was on the right track, um, but it, I did need that distance between yeah, yeah. the time that I had written it and editing it. Uh, and yeah, when I jump back into that world, I I'm completely immersed and and uh, I'm reminded of of why I made those. Not not myself personally as a writer, but why my characters made those choices that they make in that in that book. Right. Uh, and it's amazing to get back to to working on it, and hopefully that's the next book that that I publish. Yeah, and uh, every um, serious writer should remember that incredibly corny song, I think, by Journey. It goes, don't stop believing <laughs> because you will want to stop believing and you will stop believing. And the only the only solution, I think, is to let it go for a while. And if you are a serious writer, that time that you let it go where you say, I'm not going to work on my novel, you start working on something else, another book. So is that what happened? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I always have at least two or three projects going. And uh, that way, you know, I, I can... I can switch back and forth between them. Uh, so, yeah, I have that, my novel uh, in the works, Smothered, and then I have this other collection of short stories uh, that I'm working on. Uh, and so I switch back and forth between those two. And then I have, like, this third novel that I'm also writing, but I just, you know, I, I've, I've recently started it, so that one's kind of like on the far back burner. When I get tired of my novel, my collection of short stories, then I go back to this Alex, which I had written originally as a script and I wrote the whole script out and I thought, wow, it's beautiful. It's almost, you know, it, it, it almost has the outline for me because I have the, the script and what happens. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm uh, working on novelizing that also. And so all these years of uh, working on the novel and then arriving at a point where you think, well, maybe I'm just not a writer. Maybe I should get a job. Although if you're a writer, you, when you when you say that to yourself, well, maybe I should just get another job. You're thinking like, what? What the hell am I going to do? I mean, what else is there, right? But um, uh, you uh, you started sending out these poems. You got them accepted. And then suddenly you found yourself, you found that you had a book and you sent it out to a publisher and you got it published. Can you tell us what it feels like to have a book after all these years of, of working so hard? I mean, the, the feeling is amazing. Yeah. It's amazing to hold it. I still don't, I still like, don't believe it. Like it still hasn't set in. Uh, but that's not to say that it was like an easy process. Like I just sent the manuscript and then it got published, right? Of course it's just, you know, the, the, the design and the, the, when I was when I had sent it out, the editor had changed my lines on me, and then <laughs> that became an issue. And you know, so it's right, it's right. never like, and I'm realizing like, like everything else. You know, my mama used to say that, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a struggle. Right. And I, and that and that when that hits, I can either get uh, cynical about it or uh, accept it. Uh, you know, take this sort of uh, stoic mentality and say, well, good. I'm glad that that obstacle is there. Now I know how to overcome it the next time it comes around. Right. And so, yeah, when I got back the, the galleys or the proofs of it and I looked at it and I said, these lines are all over the place. I didn't <laughs> write it this way. And the publisher was like, well, write me, write back to me telling me, you know, on page 52, this line is off. And I said, that's going to be like I'm writing you a whole other book. <laughs> it's completely off. You know, I can't go yeah. line by line and tell you where you cut it at the wrong spot. Yeah, so, yeah. 
You, you know, as, as, as writers and as people who want to be writers, there are so many fantasies surrounding the, 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 the career, like, you know, the, the book tour fantasy. You know, you get, a, you get a writer, you get a book, and then they, they send you on a tour all over the world, and there's people lined up to, to you know, to, to buy your books, and you do uh, TV and radio interviews and, and, and all this stuff, and your life is just perfect after that point. But we know after the very first experience that it's not just getting the contract and it's not just working on the manuscript with the editor, which could be frustrating. But then once the book comes out, that's when the real work begins. And it's hard work to promote a book. You have to go out there and you have to do readings. But under the pandemic, you can't do that anymore. Your book came out during the pandemic. How are you getting the book out there? And what what would you have done differently if you could, uh, if there were no pandemic? Well, the first, you know, the first thing that I did was um, I got the book and uh, I realized, you know, there's a difference when, for example, someone goes and buys it from the publisher or on these other platforms like Amazon. And when somebody buys it from me, you know, if somebody buys it from the publisher or Amazon, I'm only getting a, a you know, 10%, 12% of the book right. sales. But if they buy it from me, I'm getting 40% of the book sales. So I taught myself how to build a website and then I went and built a website so that That's people smart. can go and buy it from me. Yeah, so that that was a big part of it. Uh, promoting it on social media, uh, getting it to, to uh, readers such as yourself who have these other platforms, uh, podcasts where I can go on and, and, and do, do readings and talk about the book. Uh, and I think the biggest part, you know, I, I'm, I was very ingrained into the music and art and culture scene here in El Paso, and I already had these, these plans. I got the news that it was getting published before the pandemic, so I had already these plans of, like, where I'm going to do my readings and, and the events that I was going to throw, and, you know, that's completely gone now. Right. Uh, so I'm, you know, we're shifting. We have to shift. We have to adapt, and we're doing it so that it becomes... Uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to make videos now of me reading and, and put those out and figuring out ways to do online readings that are entertaining. Uh, I know we had talked in the past about, you know, how we do that. I, I don't want to just sit on my couch and read uh, <laughs> right. and, and be like, yeah, like this is an event. It's not, <laughs> it's not an event. You know, I want to do something that's, that's spectacular. And right. um, so... That's how I'm adapting to it. But yeah, definitely. I, you know, I had my square reader. I had my tent. I was ready to go and, and set up at farmer's markets and start selling books. and just right. For, for, for non-merchants, non, uh, 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 explain what a square reader is. So a square reader is uh, it's a, a device that you attach to your phone so that you can run people's credit cards. Right. So when and, you sell books, nobody has cash anymore. And, you know, or checkbooks, I think. Probably people even older than me, and I'm pretty old, are the only ones that carry checkbooks around anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's no checkbooks. Everybody has cards. Everybody has right. pay on their phone. Right. And, and um, yeah, I've been resisting that for years, but I finally got one uh, shortly before the pandemic when Kafka and a Skirt came out. And uh, but I never got a chance to use it because the pandemic started. So I, I, I have the ability to charge your credit card should you hand it to me. But uh, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. During these pandemics, when, when does that happen? You know, right. and I had my tent ready and everything. And 
uh, that's okay. It'll be there when, once this pandemic goes over. And uh, until then, you know, it's it's available to consume online, yeah. and uh, and that's where I'm, I'll be promoting it. You know, I've, you, I'm I'm kind of getting this image of you going to a book fair or something, setting up your tent and having your, you know, setting up your books. And um, and I'm reminded of um, those craft and Saturday markets or Sunday markets that are spread throughout cities all over the world where craftspeople will bring their candles or their jewelry and they'll, you know, and they'll, they'll sell, you know, they'll, they'll sell what they do. And, you know, we even have a few of those markets here in, um, you know, in El Paso. And, and I'm thinking that in many ways, publishing has become, or writers who publish today have become those kind of merchants where you do have to go from place to place and set up a table and sell your books. And uh, uh, it's it's uh, sometimes the only way to get your book out there because there are so many, literally millions of books published every year in the United States which means what, there's like 100,000 books a day or something? 6,000 books a day, I think that's what I... How do you break through that clutter? It's, it's, it's very difficult, and one of the ways you do it is like, you know, uh, like, a, like guerrilla warfare. You go here, <laughs> unfurl your tent, yeah. and go there. And uh, so um, do you think you're going to be good at selling your book? Yeah, I have. Uh, so I'm an adjunct professor, which uh -huh. means that sometimes I don't get all the classes that I need to, uh, you know, to give me the income that, that I, that I want. And so there was some times, uh, in the past where, you know, my classes would have to get, uh, were given to somebody else or something would happen. And, and all of a sudden with, you know, a week's notice, I'm, um, I lost half my income. So I have this, this, uh, this friend of mine, uh, Rick Quintanat, uh, shout out to Rick who is a merchant. He, he makes art and he goes and he goes to these festivals and sells. And he told me, well, start coming with me. And so I went to my bookshelf and I got all the books that I had read. And that you know, I'm like, you've never really done reading a book, but that I felt comfortable giving away and or selling. And I would go with him to all these fairs and I would set up and sell books. And, you know, I'm selling all kinds of books. I'm selling, uh, you know, uh, you know, Juno Diaz, and I'm selling, uh, you know, Herman Hesse, and I'm selling all these books. And I'm the only person selling books at this at these fairs. Right. And people were coming up and like, oh, wow, this this book's beautiful. And oh, yeah. And then, you know, I, I talked to them about it. And also, it's something that I learned when I was in the MFA program, uh, because I was uh, put in charge of promoting the MFA program to students and the creative writing program to high school students who are graduating. And what I would do is I'd go set up my table and I would put your all's books there. You know, I'd put your book, I'd put Ben's book, mm -hmm. I'd put Rosa's book. And when people walk by, I tell them, these are your professors. And I'd show them the books. And, right. and you know, and, and if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think we had like a 20, 30% increase in enrollment in creative writing during those times. Right. So I got good at, at, at hawking books, you know, selling, oh, wow. selling books on, uh, on the fairgrounds. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm com I'm confident that once once I'm able to do that again, uh, you know, that, that's something that'll be easy. Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting because you know, as as we're talking about this, I think you know, when the pandemic is over, when and if, and I mean, when suddenly, you know, the markets are open again, and we could go to outdoor markets, indoor markets, book fairs, you know, everything isn't going to be taking place virtually. 
um, that there is going to emerge, perhaps we could even call it a new class of writers who have been locked up all this time and have all these boxes and boxes of books that just may start selling selling that way more aggressively and you know even to the point to where you know we are creating a new kind of literary market one that's more grassroots and more direct to the writer and and in addition to that if if that does happen if that is the future uh, it could be more expedient more profitable for a writer to self-publish than even to to go through a publisher because if they go through a publisher they get the books for 40% off so they only yeah. make 40% of the price tag but if they publish them themselves they get 100% off and uh, when you're in a book when you're in a, 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 a craft fair or a farmer's market or a Saturday market you're selling your book based on your presentation and what you can say about it so it's possible that uh, that also might be a viable uh, economic uh, option for writers in future generations yeah i think i think a big part of that is you know the, the publishing company that you go with um uh, some publishers they they just publish your book and then really they're kind of making their money off of you buying the books from them and they expect you uh, to do all the promotion they do nothing Right, and and I'm noticing that there's a shift, right? Like there's some publishers that are suddenly now they're becoming the promoters, and they're doing the best that they can to get their writers onto virtual readings, and they're building the websites for their writers. Right, right. And I think I hope you know I think those are the publishers that that uh, you know writers should seek out because yeah, if, if a publisher just oh here's your book, you need to buy 40 copies from me. And that, and then you have to do all the work. Then, then yeah, definitely, you know, why not go to uh, Kindle Publishing, which will publish your book for a lot cheaper, and or publish it, like you said, publish it yourself and take it to a printing press. Uh, but so I, I hope, I hope that you know, not only is it a switch uh, for the writers, but I hope it's also for the publishing companies that realize that they need to start putting in, uh, you know, some of the hustle also. And like I said, a lot of them are. Yeah, you know, that's probably happening already. I mean, you know, I think about Valise Books, which was started by uh, two um, uh, women from El Paso, both of them graduates from the uh, MFA program. They started this fantastic publishing company. They're doing great books, award-winning books, and that's what they do. They go to different book fairs, they set up their table, and they, they, they sell their books that way. And uh, yeah, I, I imagine we're going to see a lot of that in the future, that we have to find a way to keep the arts alive because if we just go with the big... The big publishers, the publishers that won't even read your manuscript without an agent, uh, you know, and most likely an agent that they know that they, they you know, that they uh, uh, socialize with, you know, it's going to be, you know, very tough for writers. And right now we are producing in this country and all over the world through MFA programs um, and uh, PhDs in creative writing, we are producing more writers than the culture has ever had in the history of our language. Uh, and so the, the market is going to have to find ways to allow these writers to, to exist. And um, uh, yeah, I don't know why we're talking about this. We're here to talk about yeah. your book. <laughs> I'm talking yeah, it's all right. It's good. I'm talking to Carlos Fidel Espinosa on his first book of poems, How to Lie to Accustomed Agents. I love that title. Tell us how you got that title. Uh, 
Yeah, I, you know, thinking about it, uh, one of my friends, uh, my buddy Alex uh, Roca, he was telling me the story. We were at a party one time, and he's telling the story. Uh, and I, I thought, man, this is so beautiful because it, it was almost like as if he was wearing it, like as a this this idea of, of crossing mojado, right? Like crossing, uh, you know, like the English uh, derogatory term, crossing wetback, right? But he was talking about it like it has this this valor to it, and he was like calling people out and saying, "Have you ever crossed mojado, or did you cross because you were American?" And he told me the story about how when he was a little a little boy, the first time he came to the United States. Uh, his mom had given him NyQuil, had put NyQuil in a soda, and it passed. He passed out. And when they crossed over the bridge, you know, the the customs agent is looking in the car, and, and you know, you had, back in those days, you had to say you were American. And Alex didn't speak English, so because he was passed out of sleep, the customs agent just waved him through when when his, <laughs> his mom and his stepdad, you know, so. To me, I was like, yeah, there's, there has to be all these wonderful ways that you that you lie to a customs agent, you know, when you're bringing back medicine or even like certain fruits aren't allowed to cross because right. of the seed and they're scared the seed's going to get cross contaminated. And so that's how the idea for the uh, the title came about, you know, from, from my buddy Alex's story. <laughs> well, it's a fantastic book. I, I There's one poem that, uh, that really struck me um, uh, as... Um, uh, really, uh, I think it's uh, the the, uh, the poem that you write. Um, it's called. Hold on, let me find this. It's called Thirty Eight Reasons Why Chicanos Should Go to College," and or Chicanx is should go to college. Uh, and I love this poem. And I you say in the uh, you say this inspired by uh, Juan Felipe Herrera. His uh, I think one hundred eighty seven reasons Mexicans can't cross the border. And it's a list of reasons why Chicanos should go to college. And it's very funny and sometimes very serious and even at times painful. But I love this line uh, where it says, because every Chicanx artist, stu art student goes through a Virgen de Guadalupe phase. <laughs> and I'm thinking that's, that may be true. And I'm wondering, did you go through your Virgen de Guadalupe phase where you wrote about her, you, 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 know, you did your visual art about her, your songs about her? Oh, definitely. You know, that's uh, uh, she becomes a symbol, right? So it's, it's like this muse, but it becomes a symbol of, of both, um, you know, the uh, Catholic religion, which a lot of us, a lot of uh, Latinos or Chicanexes, uh, were are part of, right? Um, grew up in, uh, and then that once you start studying and you, you go back and you look into your indigenous roots and you start realizing that. You know that uh, she's also this uh, Aztec goddess, and uh, it becomes a very important point. And it's almost like this: like you, you don't have to necessarily choose, but it's like this point of how you're going to see it. Are you going to see her as this uh, the mother of Christ, or as this uh, indigenous deity? And you kind of take that idea, and and it's it's great to sort of sit back and just kind of watch the possibilities open up in front of you. Um, right. So, yeah, and e almost every artist I know has drawn a Virgen de Guadalupe at some point, has done a Virgen de Guadalupe painting, has done a Virgen de Guadalupe-inspired poem. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a big part of, of uh, who we are, almost like our, uh, 
you know, one of our rites of passage is to realize the the importance of the Virgen de Guadalupe. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah, and uh, this poem, 39 Reasons uh, Why Chicanos Should Go to College, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to to uh, to read it. Sure. Let's see. Um, it's on page 37. I have your book right in front of me. How to Lie to a Customs Agent by Carlos Fidel Espinosa. And we're going to hear 39 Reasons Why Chicanos Should Go to College. <laughs> All right, right. 39 Reasons Why Chicanexes Should Go to College, inspired by Juan Felipe Herrera's Estilo. Because curandismo should be a required course for all health science majors. Because you can buy diapers with grant money. Because you can pay rent with scholarships. Because it's been 39 years since Chicano students took over the administration building at the University of Texas, El Paso. Because Chicanismo has become a genre of the arts because Aristotle is taught in every class, because Plato is taught in every class, because Greek history is called humanities, because the Mayans are considered primitive, because Mesocoyoto, the poet king, is taught in anthropology, not literature, because Mesoamericans created the green movement, because architects still can't figure out how we built our temples, because the Toltecs were the greatest mathematicians, because our ancestors engineered corn, because the word raza is cliche, because the word tierra is cliche, because gabacho is cliche, because Trump wants to build a wall, because Fox said, we're not paying for that effing wall, because La Raza Unida has more members than the Tea Party, because we got President Kennedy elected, because we got President Obama elected, because si se puede, because every Chicanx art student goes through a week in the Guadalupe phase. Because you need to teach your spell check to read in the Spanish. Because Pancho Villa is still considered abandoned. Because we need more teachers. Because you can get a student visa. Because hipsters are hosting all the political rallies these days. Because you can get a BX in Chicanx LGBTQ discourse. Because Sandra Cisneros is only one of many feminist Chicanx writers. Because we need sleeper agents in the federal government. Because you can use the frequent crossers line at the puente. Because you can take code switching as a second language. Because you are a descendant of Nezor Tuipil. Because the poet Viva Flores used to be La Rana. Because Benjamin Alida Sainz is a poet. Because you're a poet and you didn't even know it. That was Carlos Espinosa reading from his brand new book of poems, How to Lie to a Customs Agent. So there's a lot to unpack in that poem, Carlos. There's, uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of truth. Um, but one of the things that I, uh, another thing that really strikes me is um, when you say that um,
Okay. Hello? When you say, yeah, sorry, sorry. I, I went out for a little while. Let me start all over. Um, I'm, I'm just giving it some time. Let me give it some time. Okay. You write, because the, rasa, the word rasa is cliche, because the word tierra is cliche. That's really interesting, because they're not really cliche, but it's a lot of times when we use words like that, uh, or even when we write characters that are familiar to us, or images that are familiar to us, a lot of times, because we're Latinos, immediately it's labeled as cliche. Do you find that uh, that you, you as, a, as a Chicanx writer, uh, sometimes have to inter deal with that? I think, you know, uh, especially when the when you're in a, situ in a situation like an MFA program and, you know, people are, um, a lot of the writing workshops, it's like everybody becomes a headhunter and they want to just tear your work down, not not necessarily because they, they're trying to help you improve it, but just because they want to sound witty and intelligent in the middle of a writing workshop right you know yeah so i i think it's hilarious that like when i was when i'd write these stories and they were like about uh you know these chicano characters chicano characters people would tell me like oh that's that's chicano cliche to write right. about language exactly. and then you know seven years later i read their books and that's exactly what they're writing about and i'm like wait what <laughs> Yeah, I remember uh, my experience at the MFA at the University of Oregon. I was there with Andres Montoya, and we had to deal with this a lot. We were the only two Chicano writers in the program. And I would write a story, and, you know, my, my stories, I think, were pretty good. And, and But one time I wrote a story, and one of the characters got drunk. And um, some of the comments were, it's a cliche, the drunk Mexican. You know, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I've, I've written 100 characters, the only one that's been drunk. How many of you have written about drunk characters, and it's not a cliche? And so it is kind of a, a challenge. Yeah, exactly. Like, and you're thinking, well, what? What do you mean? Oh, well, you shouldn't be right, you know. And it's like well, I'm writing about my people, their experiences. I'm writing about my community's experiences, and and you're calling it a cliche. Then there's also this other discourse. I don't know if you uh, read that article. Who, the writer escapes my 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 memory, but. Um, they had written how the idea of the raza cosmica was uh, is racist, right? It, and uh, because it's trying to still prove that one race is superior to another race, and right. and that it has all of these, uh, you know, uh, colonial mentality behind the raza cosmica. And so, you know, I, I think about that also, you know, and how these words become interchangeable, you know, tierra and raza. Uh, and they they take on different meanings, and yeah, so that's why I put it cliche because number one, I used to get you know bombarded in workshops for it, and number two, uh, what are those words taking place? For? You know, what are they standing in for? Right, right. Do you italicize your Spanish? Uh, no, I I don't. Sometimes the editor did it in this book, and uh, I went back and and had to. <laughs> Yeah. Had to uh, you know talk to him about about why it is that I don't. Uh, but no, no, I, I choose not to. I think it's I'm you know I'm from the border. The right. language here is is interchangeable. Right, and, and uh, that's the important thing is that there was a, a time in Latinx literature where 
uh, writers made the choice not to italicize because it's basically to italicize is to other the language. And what we're trying to say is that, no, when we use uh, words like, uh, you know, uh, uh, well, any word in Spanish, we're not using it as a foreign language. We're using it as part of just the way that we talk. Um, but editors took a long time to catch up to that. And I still get editors today who try to italicize my Spanish. And... Um, and I think that that attempt to italicize is in many ways representative of some of the challenges Latinx writers have coming from bilingual, bicultural communities. Uh, and, um, and I recall when my first book came out, my first novel came out, I did italicize the Spanish because the main character um, didn't speak Spanish. So when he spoke Spanish, it was a foreign language. And I remember I was at a party and a uh, Chicano writer asked me, you you didn't italicize your Spanish, did you? And, uh, you know, and I had to embarrassingly admit yes. And I thought that's interesting <laughs> because what's happening is expectations are also coming from the Latinx community about what you write and about how you should write and that we have it doubly hard because we are in, in a sense trying to be understood by a mainstream community, but also in a sense trying to overcome or not have to worry about the conventions of what was our own writing community. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I took a big, uh, uh, a lot of my inspiration and, and a big part of uh, sort of the core, uh, you know, my poetics comes from um, this essay that Ben, Ben Sines wrote, uh, I want to be an American poet in a post-colonial... I, I want to write an American poem is the yes. name of the essay. Yeah, it's a fantastic essay yeah. about his experience at the Stanford workshop. He was a Stegner fellow. Yes, and, and he's talking about, um, you know, how uh, these other writers don't have to italicize when they're using, uh, you know, language from local language and why we shouldn't have to necessarily do that either right we don't have to other ourselves and i i just adapted that into my poetics i thought that's 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 great you know yeah and, uh, i and, think that and, and another important point that he made in that essay is that when white writers use latin words or french words it's okay but if we use spanish words or nahuatl words we're being esoteric and we we should put little footnotes at the bottom so so people will know what we're saying that's horrible <laughs> Yeah, but I, I do love I, I do love this book and what you're doing with it. And I think the book is at its best. There, 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 there. It's at its best when it's expressing the experience of what it's like to live on the border. And I know you've lived on the border all your life, but there's this one poem that I thought was was really powerful, and it's called "Why El Paso No Longer Has a, Has Streetcars That Cross Into Mexico," and part of the poem is about how when people would cross into the United States from Juarez, Ciudad Juarez, they would have to disrobe and they were sprayed with some sort of disinfectant or bug killer or something. And there was this young woman who refused to take off her clothes one more time and just kind of bust out, busted out local and, and, and did something. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I won't give up the whole poem, but can you tell us a little bit about how this poem came along? Is it rooted in historical fact, or is it uh, just a metaphor for how 
demeaning it can be when we have to cross the borders and, and answer about who we are and why we have the right to cross. So I came across this history uh, in 2007 from David Romo's Ringside Seats to a Revolution. Mm-hmm. And in it, he, he outlines this, uh, you know, the Bath Riots and this woman, uh, Carmelita Torres, who, who is said to be responsible for these Bath Riots. And, uh, you know, shout out to David Romo and, and his book because it's, it's great. It's I a fantastic book. Yeah, it's one of the most important about El Paso's history, border history. And um, so when I'm when I was writing this book and I'm thinking about it, I, you know, uh, that that his book is 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 beautifully written, uh, but it's ultimately a history book. And I thought, you know, we need to push this idea out. And we need to make it uh, a, a larger conversation. Uh, and David Romo is quoted as saying uh, she's the Rosa Parks of the border. But after this bath riot, we don't really know what happens to her, right? We don't know where where, where her story went after that. And so I start thinking about that as a as a type of meditation. What happened to her? Uh, and that's where this poem comes out, right? Like, what were the angers that were building up? What were the the frustration in her in her that made her say, I'm done. No mas, I'm not gonna strip down, I'm not going to accept this, I'm not I'm done with this. Uh and I mean so so much to the point where, you know, they forklift sent down its soldiers to stop the riots and and the Mexican generals sent down sent up their troops to stop the riots. And they couldn't. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful story. This story needs to be uh written in poems and shattered out and murals need to be made of it. And so this is my you know, uh, feeble attempt to get that word out on other, you know, on other mediums. <laughs> well, it didn't seem too feeble. Um, it was a, a pretty powerful poem. Um, and um, it also, I think, shows that poem and then other poems that you wrote, like uh, the one that um, where you, you say all the customs agents are Mexican. You know, right? You're crossing yeah. El Paso. All the customs <laughs> agents are Mexican. I mean, it's very much in. You know, it's very much insightful about the border experience. You you were born here. You were raised here, and um, how? What does the border mean to you as a writer? Because it seems like your your poems are about border and they're about family. What does border mean to you, and and what does family mean to you? At, they were home. Both both are 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 home in the sense of uh, even even now when I drive down the border highway and I look over to Juarez, it still feels like home to me. And even though you know the restrictions from the pandemic and also from these knucklehead presidents that we've had that that really tried to restrict crossing, it's 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 always felt like home to me. Um, and and I made that connection. Um, you know, at first, subconsciously, of connecting home and and the border and the people always want to define it as this, uh, you know, this wall that we can't cross or, or this political idea. But I subconsciously made this connection where it was family. You know, the border means family right. to me. And um, and when I started, you know, writing these poems out, I realized I saw that connection. I'm like, that's what it means to me. It's it's not it's not this political statement. It's not uh, you know this this 
tool to be used for art, but it's family. And that's why a lot of these poems, I, I go back and forth, like you mentioned, between my family and the border and, uh, you know, missing family. And it, there's even times where I write about the border as being uh, like, uh, like my sister, you know, I, I want to see her again because it's family to me. Right, right. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's where the, you know, the sentiment comes from. And to me, when, like I said, I still, and, and I, from, where I, from where I live, from my backyard, I can look into Juarez and it's, you know, it's love. Yeah, yeah, that is one of the uh, the amazing things about living here uh, is yeah you can you can look into Mexico from many many different vantage points around the city. Diff you can see different parts of Mexico. Sometimes uh, parts of Mexico like a like a little uh, uh, a little uh, brightly painted house on a on a on a desert hill is closer to you than the Albertsons down the street. You know, and uh, right, and and you can't help but think in terms of history and culture and uh, even tension. You know, the the and and duality. There's so many beautiful, beautiful things here, but there's also so many ugly things that 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 happen here due to poverty and 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 his, historical systematic uh, uh, prejudice. I I'm thinking of this poem that you wrote. Um, in this book called uh, These Cannibals. And you have this line, it says, I want to be a, an optimist, I want to be happy, but my mind goes to dark places every time I sit in front of you and start banging away at your plastic keys. The poet is addressing the, the, the keyboard there. And it, is writing for you a way to express a particular darkness that maybe you wouldn't have to express otherwise? You know, one of the things that um, when I when I was writing my novel, um, and when I was writing this this collection of short stories, is that you know I'd oftentimes write a, a poem, and I'd have to take a minute and let my emotions come out and like sob over these these things that I wrote because either they were very personal to me or because uh, what the characters were going through was just heartbreaking, right. um, and you know I. We live our, our lives, we, we put on these, these masks, we walk around, we pretend we're happy, we go shopping to grocery stores, we, we courteous to people, and we smile, and we kind of hide what's going on inside of us as much as we possibly can, and right. we put on these airs, right? Um, and for me, sitting down, writing, that's where I find the most power in my writing. That's where I find the most, uh, you know, energies there. Uh, so, and that's where I allow myself to go into these, into these dark places, you know. And sometimes people describe it as being like cathartic, the experience of writing these mm -hmm. events down that are powerful in your life. But it's like when you're a writer and you have to read them and you have to read them as uh, part of your performance and you have to go back and revisit them. I don't know if cathartic would be the right word because I, I have to like go back and relive that pain and relive <laughs> it and relive it and right, you know. Right. And there's still there's still some poems in here that I I don't know if I could read out loud live, I you know I don't know if I could read it at a reading because I you know I, I wouldn't want to break down crying I'm supposed to be this tattooed badass Chicano you know and <laughs> and I don't know if I can yeah you know I don't know right, if I can right. read those poems live so but that's definitely a, a big part of where I draw a lot of my my energy from. 
And yeah. even when I try to sit down and write a happy story, man, I can't. I can't. <laughs> it gets really dark real quick. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I couldn't help but think of, um, you know, one of the concepts that Carl Jung is famous for is that uh, everybody carries a shadow self, he says, and that, um, that the less that shadow self, which is the dark you, the, the evil you, you could even say, that, that it, the less it's embodied in your conscious life, uh, that is, if you don't get it out and become consciously aware that you have this shadow side, then the blacker and the denser it gets. And I think writers and artists of many, you know, many artists have this wonderful opportunity to to bring that darkness to the conscious life without it affecting our everyday decisions and without it, uh, you know, messing up our lives. Although, you know, I imagine many writers allow that uh, that to happen as well. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, definitely. And, um, you, uh, write a lot about El Paso and you write a lot about a, uh, a family and I, I know your family and sometimes I'll read a poem and I'll know to whom you're referring because, you know, you've been, I've known you for, I don't know how many years since you were a student. Uh, so I've, I've met some of your family. Um, and, I understand, like I'll be reading something and I understand, I wonder how his family is going to take this. Are they going to read these poems as history? Are they going to read these poems as fact? Are they going to read these poems as they really did happen? But but you can't read poetry that way. Did you have to... Did you have to negotiate or explain to your family that these are poems and they didn't exactly happen? Like, for example, you have this wonderful, lovely poem about how your wife's ex died in the chili fields in New Mexico. It's a beautiful poem. Um, but that doesn't mean it happened that way. Yeah, there's this... this uh, my father one time told me, uh, for a long time when I was... Uh, learning to write and and coming up as a writer and I'd get a, a story published in a literary magazine or a literary review and every Christmas I would give that book to my father mm. uh, as you know as part of his his Christmas gift and you know it was my dad's uh, he had expressed a long time ago that he wanted to be a writer and I remember finding his short stories one time in the closet and I read them and I thought they were great. And so maybe that, you know, that's where I get it from. And I would give him these, Oh, look, dad, my story got published or my poem got published here. And I'd give him the book, uh, my only copy of the book. And I'd give it to him. And, and one time he told me, you know what, son, write about all of it, write about it all. And I thought, and I took that to heart. And so I do write about, like you said, family. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I'm a poet and I'm an artist and that means that I have to have a creative license to go beyond just what the actual facts are because, you know, I'm not a historian, I'm a, right. I'm a poet. And so, yeah, you know, I, it's not necessarily all true. I do it also for dramatic effect. I do it also right. because language wants to go there because the characters want to go there, the speaker wants to go there. Uh, thus far, I haven't had to explain well maybe wait till thanksgiving or christmas maybe you'll have... <laughs> but, yeah then people are like why did you write about me like this so like that's not you yeah you yeah know, that's but 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I just finished uh, another collection of stories, and one of the stories was called "Sex with the X," and it was about these, uh, you know, this man and this woman that would, you know, were they hated each other and they were exes, but they would get together once a week just to have sex, and um, and of course, my wife hated it. She 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 just hated it so much um, because it was uh, told in the I perspective and. And, uh, you know, and I had to explain, and it's just not true. This is just, this is just a story. This is just a story. But um, a lot of times, you know, when you use detail uh, in a uh, skillful way, people cannot help but wonder if it's true. And your detail in this book is amazing. And so I imagine a lot of people, like when I read that poem about um, um, how they had to take off their clothes and get sprayed, uh, just across the border and how one young woman decided not to do it anymore and she rebelled and she, she lashed out. I wanted to believe it. I wanted to believe that it was true. And apparently it was true. Yeah, exactly. And she's there. You know, I thought about what it must have felt like to grab that button on her blouse that she's about to unsnap for these greedy Border Patrol agents who are, you know, salivating with this prospect of this of this young woman, you know, she was 17 at the time, taking off her blouse and what it must have felt like holding that button in her hand as she's pulling it, pulling it away mm -hmm. and realizing that she's done with this, you know, this isn't going to work anymore. This is, she's not going to degrade herself. And, and not only that, but that she's going to make them pay. Uh, and yeah, those, those details, uh, you know, that's, we learned to lie as writers. Right. <laughs> It's one of our biggest weapons is that we, we know how to lie. Yes, and uh, as Antonin Artaud said that uh, about writers, we have the right to lie, just not about the truth. <laughs> well, thank yeah. you, Carlos, uh, for joining us on Words on a Wider, uh, How to Lie to a Customs Agent. It's a, it's a beautiful book. gives you insight into El Paso and insight... Uh, uh, into the mind of a, well, if you don't mind me saying it, a crazy imaginative poet. <laughs> and I wanted to oh, say, awesome. I wanted to say before we go that our new theme music um, is a song that you wrote. I was looking for some uh, to change up the song, and and you sent me a few songs of yours, and um, it's a beautiful song. It's called Mama Sita, and thank you for letting us use that. Well, we're it, it's the sound we're going to use uh, from from now on. So we we appreciate that. Oh, of course, it's my pleasure, and I love I love talking to you and uh, and being on this program is a big a big help and a big thank you uh, to you all and your producers. And as we go out, let's hear. Yo no quiero ser